The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 244 of the program. Today is June 5th, 2020, and in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter protests that are now taking place around the globe, we will be focusing the entirety of this episode on that very moment, on this really crucial moment in not just American, but world history. But before we get started, I want to take some time to thank the people who make this show possible. Our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members who sign up this week, including Alfredo F. Garza, Andrew Smith, Anisha B., Ben Barreto, Brad X., Claire Suen, Crypto Mojito, Francis Hasso, Jay Bombian, Jeffrey Williams, Jinx the Clown 44, Kathleen Hardy, Christy Wandel, Lonnie Chenoweth, Mark Cranfield, Nicholas Hazlett, Papa Joe White, Radio Ardia, Rob Weeks, Scott Siegel 95, Tia Kilpatrick, Vika, Why Save Sonu, Zhao Lu, and Zoran Plazivskak. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. Uh, if you want to support the show, there will be links down below, but I will encourage you to instead support the local bail funds in your state for protesters who are taking to the streets, putting their bodies on the line to fight for justice. They need the funds right now more than this show does, so please direct your funds to them for the time being. So this week on the program, things get ugly in the United States as Donald Trump threatens to use the military to crush the rebellion. Also, we'll listen to a leaked call between Donald Trump and governors where he reveals his authoritarian tendencies. We'll also discuss the incitement of violence of protesters in Antifa by Republicans such as Matt Gates, who wants to hunt them down, and uh, Tom Cotton, who agrees with Donald Trump that we should use the military to violently crush the protests taking place across the country. Also, congressional candidate Marjorie Greene releases an unhinged response who is following in the footsteps of Donald Trump by threatening to murder members of Antifa. We'll look at the Democratic Party's response and how one Democratic lawmaker was caught on hot mic admitting he wouldn't care if he didn't have a primary. We'll discuss the autopsy of George Floyd and how the county coroner was clearly shielding Derek Chauvin. Dr. Cornell West blesses us with some words of wisdom that he always has. We'll look at the widespread use of tear gas and I'll make the case as to why I believe this is a violation of the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and we'll talk about a Karen who called the police on one Black Lives Matter protester. That's what we've got on the agenda for today's episode. This isn't going to be um, the funnest episode, but I think it's important that we look at these topics and examine, examine them in a really serious way because I cannot stress just how serious this moment in time is and what we do now is going to dictate the trajectory that our country heads in. We're going to change the course of history if we play our cards right. So I want to spend this entire episode focusing on Black Lives Matter, the response from Republicans, and um, let's talk this through. I think it's important. So enjoy the show. So I want you all to just take a moment and really reflect on what is happening around us currently. On the spectrum between democracy and authoritarianism, we are rapidly shifting 
towards authoritarianism. We are effectively becoming an authoritarian police state before our very eyes. We're moving away from proto-fascism and devolving into an outright fascistic regime. And the police are upholding this fascism. They are complicit now. And I don't want to sound hyperbolic, because I don't want to give you the impression that this is some sort of new phenomenon. We have been gradually moving closer and closer towards authoritarianism ever since 9-11, when we saw things like the Patriot Act, and never-ending war, and later and later stages of capitalism. But now, with everything that's transpired over the last couple of months, we are really seeing the death of the American empire. And it is really overwhelming. And part of the reason why we're witnessing this acceleration of our slide into authoritarianism is because Donald Trump is hungry for power and he is trying to consolidate the power of the executive. Now, it's not like Donald Trump is the only president to expand the power of the executive branch, but he's making really large leaps to make sure that the president can essentially do what he wants. So when I tell you that we are devolving into an authoritarian regime, I'm not trying to make it seem as if we're going to turn into North Korea by next Tuesday. But uh, what I do want to emphasize here is that our constitutional rights, our civil liberties are being attacked by the United States government openly. And there's various examples that point to that. So let's just look at what Donald Trump has done over the course of the last week. Put aside, you know, the complete failed response to COVID-19, but look at what he's done just last week. So first, he says that the United States government will now designate Antifa as a terrorist organization. And if you don't know why that's troubling, well, as journalist Ben Norton points out, Antifa is not an actual organization. It's a decentralized group. There are no quote-unquote Antifa leaders. So now the U.S. government will have the quote-unquote right to imprison anyone for quote-unquote terrorism if it just claims they're part of Antifa. Designating Antifa as a terrorist organization would be like designating environmentalists or socialists or anti-racists as terrorists. Antifa just means anti-fascist. Antifa isn't an organization, party, or gang. You can't be an official member, but the U.S. police state knows that. So, by designating Antifa as a terrorist organization, this is giving the U.S. government permission, or more specifically a justification, to indefinitely detain United States citizens. You can just say they're doing terrorist activity if they are anti-fascist at all and lock them up. So this gives the U.S. government a blank check, effectively, to lock up anyone. Because aren't most Americans technically anti-fascist? I mean, I'd hope so, right? Because that's all that Antifa is. But on top of that, he wants to stifle criticism of the United States government. Because he called on the Supreme Court to reverse their landmark Texas v. Johnson decision where the court held that flag burning, unsurprisingly, is in fact a protected form of free speech. So he doesn't want you to criticize the U.S. government. And on top of that, he took to Twitter saying, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, which is exactly what the chief of police in Miami told civil rights activists back in 1967. It's a phrase with explicitly racist origins. And on top of that, if you haven't seen any footage from Washington, D.C. currently, it looks like an authoritarian police state with military vehicles 
clearing the path for Donald Trump so he could take a quick photo op. And right before he made that embarrassing photo op, he made a speech where he threatened to use the United States military to quell the protests. Let me just take a step back here and reflect on the gravity of that. Donald Trump is trying to say that if these protests don't stop, if governments don't get these protests under control, he will unilaterally send in the United States military and put them directly at odds with United States citizens. This is functionally a declaration of war against United States citizens. I know that the U.S. government is constantly at war, droning civilians in the Middle East and North Africa, but now it wants to go to war with its own people. And it's looking a lot like the wars that we do abroad when you consider the fact that even predator drones are now policing Minneapolis. So here is a quick look at Donald Trump's speech where he made this very dystopian uh, declaration that he's going to possibly turn the military against its own people. These are not acts of peaceful protest. These are acts of domestic terror, the destruction of innocent life, and the spilling of innocent blood is an offense to humanity and a crime against God. America needs creation, not destruction. Cooperation, not contempt. Security, not anarchy. Healing, not hatred. Justice, not chaos. This is our mission, and we will succeed. 100%, we will succeed. Our country always wins. That is why I am taking immediate presidential action to stop the violence and restore security and safety in America. I am mobilizing all available federal resources, civilian and military, to stop the rioting and looting, to end the destruction and arson, and to protect the rights of law-abiding Americans, including your Second Amendment rights. Therefore, the following measures are going into effect immediately. First, we are ending the riots and lawlessness that has spread throughout our country. We will end it now. Today, I have strongly recommended to every governor to deploy the National Guard in sufficient numbers that we dominate the streets. Mayors and governors must establish an overwhelming law enforcement presence until the violence has been quelled. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. I am also taking swift and decisive action to protect our great capital, Washington, D.C. What happened in this city last night was a total disgrace. As we speak, I am dispatching thousands and thousands of heavily armed soldiers, military personnel, and law enforcement officers to stop the rioting, looting, vandalism, assaults, and the wanton destruction of property. So for a moment, let's just put aside the fact that he's threatening to use the United States military against its own citizens. But let's dissect some of the language that he's using here, because he was wording what he was saying very carefully. 
contrary to most of his speeches. Uh, so first, he is recommending that the governors deploy National Guard in an attempt to dominate the streets. He was very careful in choosing the word dominate. Meaning that the people do not have the right to take to the streets. They will be under the full control of National Guard if governors actually follow through with what Donald Trump wants. On top of that, he says, quote, if a city or state refuses to take the actions necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. Quickly solve the problem for them. Do you understand that use of the word quickly there and what it is insinuating? He's going to crush these protests violently. You can't solve this problem quickly if you don't do that. If you try to solve this problem peacefully, it's going to take time. It's going to take organization. It's going to take dialogue and conversation. But he's going to quickly solve the problem for them. And he also emphasized that the militarized presence in D.C. will be heavily armed. This is openly authoritarian. Now, the question is, legally speaking, is he able to subvert the will of governors and actually deploy the U.S. military if they don't want the military there? As CNN's Zachary B. Wolf explains, President Donald Trump threatened Monday night to invoke the Insurrection Act of 1807 law and take the unusual step of deploying active duty U.S. soldiers to police U.S. streets. While Trump claims the move would break up anti-fascists or Antifa, who he says are organizing violent riots that have led to looting, it would also effectively squelch peaceful protests for racial justice after the death last week of a black man, George Floyd, after a police officer used lethal force during a stop. That would be a remarkable turn on the law, which was most notably used in the 1950s to enforce desegregation and later in the 1960s to address riots in Detroit. According to the Congressional Research Service, it hasn't been invoked since 1992 during the riots in Los Angeles that followed the acquittal of four white police officers in the beating of Rodney King. Now Attorney General William Barr was actually Attorney General back then too under former President George H.W. Bush. But there may be curbs on what Trump can do. One section of the law suggests that states must first request help, but other portions of the Insurrection Act do not require a governor or state legislatures okay, such as when the president determines the situation in a state, makes it impossible to enforce U.S. laws, or when citizens' rights are abridged. Historically and practically, such a request is not necessarily a prerequisite to the president using regular federal troops for domestic law enforcement, said Stephen Vladek, a University of Texas law professor and CNN contributor. There are examples of presidents using troops over the objections of governors, as Dwight Eisenhower and later John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson during the civil rights era. In particular, Eisenhower invoked the Insurrection Act when he federalized the Arkansas National Guard and then sent the 101st Airborne Division into Little Rock to integrate the schools. There's a lot to digest here, but let's take a little bit of time to parse out the details. As the article stated, the last time that this was invoked was during the 1992 riots. Except the difference there was that the governor had requested the president send in the U.S. military. So this isn't necessarily like the previous state-federal government disputes. This is U.S. citizen-president dispute. This is the president of the United States sending in the military against the people. So you can try to frame this as, you know, governors don't want it, so this is technically, you know, a federal versus state issue. But this isn't, you know, 
a governor who is choosing to not integrate public schools after Brown versus Board of Education. This is the president who is saying, I am going to unilaterally send the United States military as commander in chief to these states, even if governors don't want that to happen because we have to crush these protests. I think this is really different. And even though legally they're going to try to make the case that this is like when Lyndon B. Johnson or John F. Kennedy did it, it's actually not. And really, it doesn't matter because just because something is legal doesn't necessarily mean that it's moral or right. So let's just call this what this is. This is the United States government trying to crack down on U.S. citizens by deploying the military. It's what we saw during the Arab Spring in Egypt. We're seeing that here. This is astonishing. And the question is, um, is this basically martial law? What is this? Well, the definition of martial law is as follows. It's military government involving the suspension of ordinary law. So we're not technically to that point, but as Will Wilkinson puts it, why all the legalistic parsing of the ins and outs of the Insurrection Act on cable news as if there's some question here? The story is that the president is dipping his toe into declaring martial law because abused citizens want justice. That crosses every line. He's got to go. So what Wilkinson is pointing to here is how pundits on cable media is trying to legally justify his actions, possibly finding out for him and, you know, basically nuance troll about whether or not this is permissible. But regardless, if you can try to find some sort of legal exploit for it, this is an authoritarian crackdown. And it's not just any sort of authoritarian crackdown. We're not talking about the Patriot Act spying on citizens illegally without a warrant. We're talking about the United States government threatening to turn the U.S. military on the people it's supposed to protect. So this is a drastic escalation and um, I should note that the response from Democrats has effectively been to write Donald Trump um, strongly worded letters via Twitter. So Trump is consolidating his power, cracking down on protests, possibly violently with the military. It's already a violent crackdown for sure. But he is going to possibly deploy the military and he has no opposition. There's no checks and balances. And even if, let's say, you know, um, this is technically illegal what he's doing, which I think it is, it doesn't matter because he has the courts on his side. He's stacked the courts at every level. Federal courts are on his side. So do you understand why this is devolution into authoritarianism? The president's power is not supposed to be absolute. But after each president has expanded the power of the executive, we're finally reaching the logical conclusion of that. Now, we are officially in police state territory, where the president is not shy about threatening to use the military to target and attack its own citizens. Yeah, I, I don't know what, what else to say about that. This is uh, terrifying. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's recap what's been taking place over the course of the last couple of days. The president of the United States has threatened to use the United States military to quell protests. He's going to pit the U.S. military against U.S. citizens. Let me remind you, the U.S. military is actually supposed to protect United States citizens, but now they're being used potentially, if Trump actually follows through with this, 
to stifle freedom of speech, to stop protests in America, possibly use violence against U.S. citizens. So now, more than ever, we need uh, an opposition party. But where are they? Not really anywhere to be found. Uh, unless you look to Twitter, then they're putting out really flowery tweets. Um, if you look to Democratic Party leadership, they are writing strongly worded letters to Donald Trump. But we don't have a real opposition party. We don't actually have a check on Donald Trump's authority as he consolidates the power of the executive branch. Do you remember when President Obama was in office? He also expanded the power of the executive, but Republicans were on him like that. It doesn't matter what he did. He was signing executive orders, and they were on him every single time, crying dictator and whatnot. But where are Democrats when we really need them to be a check on Trump's power and tyranny, quite frankly? I mean, they're basically MIA. And if they're there... They're very ineffectual. Let's look at some of the tweets put out. Pete Buttigieg tweeted this. Black lives depend on whether America can be what we want to believe it is, what we believe it to be, what it could be. Systemic racism is so woven into the fabric of this country, facing it will take action, honesty, listening, and deep, deep change. And for many of us, humility. Now, I say this because this is an individual who's supposed to be a rising star in the Democratic Party. He almost became president. I mean, he was one of the frontrunners. And he's saying black lives depend on whether America can be what we want to believe it is. What does that even mean? What does that even mean? That means nothing. Shut up, you vapid tool. Let's go to leadership here. Uh, Chuck Schumer tweeted out, At this challenging time, our nation needs real leadership. President Trump's continued fanning of the flames of discord, bigotry, and violence is cowardly, weak, and dangerous. Here's my statement with Speaker Pelosi, and it reads, Across our country, Americans are protesting for an end to the pattern of racial injustice and brutality we saw most recently in the murder of George Floyd. Yet, at a time when our country cries out for unification, this president is ripping it apart, tear-gassing peaceful protesters without provocation just so that the president could pose for photos outside a church dishonors every value that faith teaches us. We call upon the president, law enforcement, and all entrusted with responsibility to respect the dignity, and the rights of Americans. Together, we must insist on the truth that America must do much more to live up to its promise, the promise of liberty and justice for all, which so many have sacrificed. Okay, I'm just going to stop reading this because it's just going to piss me off more. I mean, you're literally using platitudes. You're lawmakers. You are the two leaders of the Democratic Party in Congress. Take some fucking action. Write some legislation. Don't tweet. Make laws. Make some fucking laws. What are you doing? What are you doing? We call on everyone to live up to the values of America. It's insufferable. It's insufferable. This is exhausting. Now, at first, Joe Biden uh, decided to respond by saying, as president, I promise to have this conversation between black Americans and leaders and yada, yada, yada. I'm paraphrasing, but like what he said was basically to continue the conversation. We're past the point of conversation, Joe. We're past that point. Now we want action, and we don't want to wait until November or January. Action right now. You're the Democratic Party's presumptive nominee. Call on Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi to draft very specific legislation that you will sign into law if you get elected. Beat Trump over the head with that. Use this opportunity to prove to people that you are listening and you're meeting with community leaders 
and you're actually going to stop state-sanctioned murder against unarmed black Americans. Why can't you do that? Why can't you just be competent? Well, because he doesn't know how to be competent. Now, this video is floating around on the internet where he talks about how a potential solution would be to retrain police officers so that way, rather than shooting people in the chest, they just shoot people in the legs. I wish I was making this up, but this is what he said. And the idea that instead of standing there and teaching a cop who's an unarmed person to coming at him with a knife or something, shooting him in the leg instead of in the heart, is a very different thing. There's a lot of different things that can change. And talking to an awful lot of police, the former police commissioner Ramsey, you know, we had, there's a lot to be done. A lot to be done. And I don't think we should underestimate or overestimate the impact of the culture. Joe, how about we just train them to not shoot people at all? Is there any possibility where we have a police force that doesn't constantly violate the civil rights and civil liberties of Americans and murder them with impunity? Why does it have to be some form of brutality? And part of the reason why I'm assuming they don't shoot people in the legs more frequently, even though that would be, you know, uh, less likely to be lethal is because then you end up missing if you try to aim for their legs and you could shoot someone else. Why don't we just not shoot people? Can we, can we do that? I mean, what are we doing? Now, to his credit, I will say that he did promise to do fundamental change and systemic racism or take on systemic racism is what he's saying within the first 100 days. That's great. But we need very, very specific policy proposals like these vague generalities, these platitudes that we're seeing from the leaders within the Democratic Party, that ineffectualness, that lack of leadership there, that fecklessness that we're seeing is exactly why Donald Trump is able to be so authoritarian because you let him get away with it. He's not worried at all about being held accountable. He's not worried that, you know, this is setting up some sort of battle between him and the Democratic Party. He does anything he wants, and he doesn't care. So, at a time when he's literally threatening to deploy the United States military to possibly violently confront U.S. protesters, U.S. citizens, this is when we need an opposition party more so than ever. But what we've seen thus far, it's laughable. This is why the country is in the state that it's in. And I saw a meme on Twitter that I have to share. Basically, the Republican Party is Derek Chauvin, and the Democratic Party is the cop that was just watching Derek Chauvin murder George Floyd. That's what we're seeing here. They're watching. They're watching idly by as we lose civil rights and civil liberties, as, you know, this continues to happen. And it's because they don't necessarily feel as outraged as we all feel, right? You see some members of Congress show up with the photo op and, you know, uh, Representative Beatty, she actually was pepper sprayed, so she was there. But I mean, you see Chris Coons opt for a photo op, Kamala Harris, who put a lot of black and brown people in jail when she was California's att attorney general, show up for a photo op. I'm just sick of it. Like, all of these words are meaningless. We're past the point where we have beautiful words that make us feel better. Now we want action. That's what everyone is saying. Action, action, action. So stop talking and start making it happen. Action. And I get that you don't have the Senate, you don't have the White House yet, but you still have one whole branch of the United States government, the House of Representatives. So start taking action.
an independent coroner hired by the family of George Floyd found that his death was, in fact, a homicide, saying that he died of asphyxiation from sustained pressure, which was obviously caused by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin's knee being on his neck for nine minutes, including three minutes after he had already passed away. Now, if you saw the video, which I'm assuming most of you did, you'd say this conclusion is common sense. But the reason why uh, this independent coroner's ruling is so important is because the county coroner came to a different conclusion somehow. Yeah. The video that we all saw, which was very clearly murder, homicide, well, the county coroner says, mm, actually, it wasn't technically a homicide. Actually, he found no physical findings that supports a diagnosis of traumatic asphyxia or strangulation. Mr. Floyd had underlying health conditions including coronary artery disease and hypertensive heart disease. The combined effects of Mr. Floyd being restrained by the police, his underlying health conditions, and any potential intoxicants in his system likely contributed to his death. Now, I am clearly not a medical expert, but I am going to confidently say that that report is complete bullshit. Because just look at some of the language that was used here. Um, first of all, potential intoxicants. Do we have a toxicology report? Are you confirming that he did take drugs or alcohol? You're just speculating at this point, and you're basically trying to blame the victim. So it wasn't necessarily the knee that was on his neck for nine minutes. It was maybe the fact that he took drugs. That's really what killed him. Who believes this? Nobody believes this. Nobody believes this. On top of that, um, notice how the coroner referred to Jer Derek Chauvin's uh, kneeling on his neck for nine minutes as being restrained. Being restrained? That's what you call being restrained? When somebody's knee is on your neck for nine minutes and you're saying that you can't breathe, that's called being restrained? I mean, these are Orwellian descriptions of a homicide that we all saw with our very eyes. I mean, millions of people watched this video. And this coroner is trying to pee on our legs and tell us it's raining. No, we saw it. So clearly, there's a conflict of interest or something going on there. Something sketchy is taking place. Because for the coroner to say that that wasn't a homicide when we all saw it, something is going on there. There's corruption. I don't know what it is. I'm only speculating. But that guy needs to be investigated. Or girl. I don't know. Something is not right there. And as Matthew A. Cherry put it, the fix is in. Fuck this shit. Exactly. And do you understand why people are taking to the streets? It's because... Things like this happen so frequently, and the police officers almost always get away with it. And understand that people are protesting because of what happened to George Floyd, but the way that I see it is that this is basically a tipping point, right? They're also taking to the streets to protest the death of uh, Breonna Taylor, of Sean Reed, of black people who have been constantly brutalized by the police in America, and there's just no repercussions. It doesn't matter if they're on video. In fact, them being on video isn't actually holding them accountable. It's not a check like we thought it would be. They don't care. Derek Chauvin's knee was on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes, and he knew that people were filming. He knew that this could potentially go viral, and he still didn't care. Why? Because... 
he knew he'd get away with it. He knew that there probably wouldn't be accountability. And sure, he was taken into custody, but he's being charged with third-degree murder. How is this not first-degree murder? Sure, you have to say it's premeditated, but he had his knee on his neck for nine minutes. That's a homicide. That is first-degree murder. Now, I do feel a little bit relieved that Keith Ellison is overseeing this. And, you know, with him in charge of this, I think that we could see charges against all four of the officers involved because the other three who aren't yet uh, taken into custody, they, they were complicit. They were, in fact, complicit. But this is why people are marching. They're not necessarily marching because only George Floyd. Yes, he's a huge part of it, but because if they don't actually raise the alarm right now, then this is going to keep happening. It's going to keep happening. So, you know, you can't just say, well, they, they want justice for George Floyd, and that's it. If you just, you know, if you do something about that, if you hold these four officers accountable, then all of these protests will go away. I don't necessarily think it's that simple. I think that people want more than that. I know that they want more than that. We have to value black lives in America, but currently they're not valued. They are murdered with impunity, and officers who do that get away with it. And part of the reason why they get away with it is because mayors are too afraid to hold the police force accountable, and coroners in the county are often in cahoots with police. It's a giant club. These are many establishments in each city, and the reason why nothing changes is because, you know, police have a lot of power. So if we don't fundamentally change the system then this will keep happening. But I think that it's more than changing the system. It's instituting a brand new system because the old system is rotten to the core. And look, every single person has got to be outraged. I've seen a lot of pearl clutching over the looting and the rioting. But guess what? All of that, these material things, they can be replaced. The CNN logo was repainted over within hours. All of that can be replaced. But lives cannot be replaced. You can never bring back George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Sean Reed. You can never bring back these lives that were lost. So that's why people are taking to the streets. And if you're more outraged with the looting and the rioting than the actual lives that are being taken due to police brutality, then your priorities are fundamentally out of whack and you need to reassess your priorities. Do better. Donald Trump was talking a really big game on Twitter once he saw protests across the country erupt, but once he started to see those protests grow in size in front of his own lawn, well then, it was a different story. He said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, but then when he saw protesters in D.C. grow in numbers, well, behind the scenes, what did he do? He wasn't talking so tough. We now know that he retreated to an underground bunker after he threatened protesters on Twitter. So he's all talk, but he's not so tough when he's actually confronted with the reality of injustice in America. Now, if he were actually a leader and wasn't a scared, pathetic coward, he would engage with the protesters, speak with them, try to understand why they're feeling pain, why they're protesting, and in some instances, rioting and looting. But he's a coward, and he doesn't know how to lead. He doesn't know how to govern. All he knows is talk, which is why he talks a big game until shit gets real. 
Then he's running and hiding like the little bitch that he is. And after he emerged from his underground bunker, he had peaceful protesters in D.C. tear-gassed in order to make way for this now infamous photo op in front of St. John's Church, which was made into a political ad. And as Andrew Springer points out, me and my friends were tear-gassed to make this ad happen. And if you're wondering who ordered that assault on peaceful protesters, it was Attorney General William Barr, who, let me remind you, is supposed to protect the constitutional rights of American citizens, including the First Amendment, freedom of speech. So he just brazenly violated the First Amendment, his duty to protect the Constitution. Also, Donald Trump could get a photo op. But let's be clear here about something. The reason why William Barr did that for Donald Trump, the reason why Donald Trump talks so frequently about dominating the protesters is because he's terrified. He is terrified. The last thing that any leader around the world, it doesn't matter what country we're talking about, wants to see is uprising in their country. And especially if you are a dimwit with no previous experience governing and you don't know what to do, how to handle it, you're terrified because you don't know how to quell the protests. So the only thing that Donald Trump does is he gravitates towards his authoritarian instincts and he tries to get someone to crush these protesters for him. Now, in a leaked call with governors, we found out exactly how he feels, you know, the depths of his authoritarian instincts. And he definitely wants them to crush these protests because it's it's scaring him. It should scare any leader. Take a look, and then we'll analyze what he said when we come back. What happened in the state of Minnesota, they were uh, electric stock all over the world. They took over the police department. The police were running down the street, sirens blazing, the rest of them running. It was on camera. And then they wiped out. You probably have to build a new one, but I've never seen anything like it. And, and the whole world was laughing. Two days, three days later, I spoke to the governor. The governor is, I think, on the call, and he's the next one guy. And all of a sudden, and I said, you got to use the National Guard and make numbers. They did it first, and they did. And I'll tell you that, I don't know what it was. It was governor. It was the third night, fourth night. Those guys walked through that stuff like it was butter. They walked right through. And you haven't had any problems since. I mean, they don't. They're not going to go there. Now they'll go to some other place. But once you called out and you dominated, you took the worst place and you made it. They didn't even cover it last night because there was so little action. Because you dominated. You dominated. But, Tim, it showed the incredible difference between your great state yesterday and the day before compared to the first few days, which was just a hour ago. Absolutely. A police force and... And I don't blame you, I blame the mayor. I mean, I've never seen anything like it, where the police were told to abandon the police house and it was ransacked and really destroyed. And, you know, millions and millions of dollars are going to have to go back to fix it. I don't know. You'll have this conversation. I'm up to put you on the You want to still on the one thing I said? I get 24 years on the guard. The one thing I would say that you can do is a lot of people don't understand what a national guard is. And you need to get out there from a PR perspective to make sure that it's not seen as an occupying board, but it's their neighbors, school teachers, business owners, those types of things. That's a really effective thing. Okay, good. I think that's a good idea. I must tell you, uh, it got so bad a few nights ago that the people wouldn't have minded an occupying force. I wish we had an occupying force in there. But for some reason, I don't know what it is, governors don't like calling up a lot of 
start. We have thousands and thousands of people waiting to be called up. Is that a correct statement, General? We have 350,000 people, and, and they call up 200. Gee, I just don't understand why governors might take issue with the United States military crushing protests across the country. And what we just heard should terrify everyone. I need you to understand that I am not being hyperbolic when I say that we are watching democracy slip away from us, and it's been happening gradually over the course of decades. But now, that decline into authoritarianism, that descent into a police state, has accelerated rapidly because of Donald Trump. Think about what he said here. When a governor talked about the need to get ahead with regard to PR, so that way, you know, the National Guard isn't seen as some sort of occupying force, Donald Trump responded by saying, it got so bad, I don't think the people would have minded an occupying force. I wish we had an occupying force there. This is the President of the United States talking about an occupying force on American soil. Does that sound like he respects the Constitution? Does that sound like he respects the right of American citizens to assemble and voice their grievances with the U.S. government? He is an authoritarian. He wants to be a dictator. And since, you know, trying to figure out how to appease the protesters isn't even an option for him, because he's clueless, he just resorts to authoritarianism. But he wants everyone else to do the dirty work for him. He wants governors to do it. He wants the National Guard to do it. And now he wants to use the military, potentially, against its own people. This is so dangerous. And when we look back at this point in time, if we're able to survive this moment and not devolve into full-on authoritarianism... I think we're going to realize what a close call this was, but we don't necessarily know because the future hasn't been written yet. This could lead to authoritarianism. And the sad part is that a lot of people want that to happen because when you look at this poll, a lot of people are okay with the U.S. military quote-unquote supplementing police forces. So this is how democracy dies, with thunderous applause. And think about the way that he talked about these protests. He kept using the word dominate. He says, The National Guard walked through the crowds of protesters in Minneapolis like it was butter. This is violence. The United States government has officially become tyrannical. And I was told that conservatives are the ones who are watching out to make sure that our government doesn't become tyrannical, but they're the ones doing the most bootlicking as our government becomes explicitly and openly hostile towards its own citizens. You have Republican lawmakers like Matt Gates talking about hunting down American citizens. This is outright chaos. Trump is fanning the flames. And you see, you know, a sort of tepid response from congressional Republicans trying to rein him in. But I mean, they're too afraid to challenge him because of, you know, how that might affect them politically. And Democrats, I don't know what they're doing. You see Nancy Pelosi posing for a photo op, urging him to try to, you know, uh, heal the country. There's just, he's unrestrained. This is why we have to worry about Donald Trump becoming a dictator, right? Or paving the way for a future dictator who's more calculating and smart and strategic, right? Because there's no check on his tyranny. 
there's no check. He stacked the federal judiciary, so he has the courts on his side. Republicans are too afraid to fight him, as are Democrats. So we're dealing with a situation where we are sliding into authoritarianism. The U.S. government is being openly hostile towards its citizens. The president is instigating violence, threatening violence against citizens, literally threatening to use the United States military against its own people. And we're just going on about our business as if this is completely normal when it's not normal. So pay attention because we are losing democracy before our very eyes. So the other day on the program, we talked about how Donald Trump claims that the United States government will now designate Antifa as a terrorist organization, which doesn't make sense because Antifa isn't an actual organization. It doesn't have organizational structure. There's no leaders. Antifa just means anti-fascist. And as Ben Norton pointed out, uh, you know, it'd be as absurd as if you designated environmentalists or socialists loosely as an organization, right? So the reason why he did this, obviously, is because he wants to give the United States government a justification to crack down on civil rights and civil liberties. So anyone who the U.S. government deems as Antifa can be indefinitely detained, for example, or have their civil rights or civil liberties violated with impunity. That's what this is about. Although, I have to admit that I underestimated just how ruthless the Republican Party is, because we're not just talking about using this as permission by the U.S. government to crack down on protesters. One Republican lawmaker in particular is using this as permission to extrajudicially kill American citizens. And as I say this, it's honestly unbelievable to hear those words come out of my mouth, because Republican or Democrat, you know, I never thought that I'd see a day where anyone who is an elected official would suggest that we should murder U.S. citizens. But that's what Matt Gates decided to say via Twitter, saying, now that we clearly see Antifa as terrorists, can we hunt them down like we do those in the Middle East? He's talking about United States citizens. Now, let's put aside the absurdity that allows the United States government to illegally hunt down terrorists because the war on terror has been a failure. We're just ruining other countries. But he wants to do that here. Matt Gates just tweeted a sitting elected member of Congress just openly advocated to hunt down American citizens. Let me ask you this, Matt Gates. How many terrorist attacks has Antifa committed that is akin to the terrorism we see from, uh, I don't know, right-wing militias in the United States? See, if you're advocating for the extrajudicial murder of American citizens, you are the one who is the terrorist. You are the terrorist. And this is so absurd that every single person in this country should be outraged by this. Not just Democrats and members of the media, but Republicans. Because here's the thing. I would never advocate for the extrajudicial murder of American citizens, no matter how morally reprehensible I think their political views are. So look at the MAGA chuds. I absolutely despise their philosophy on life. I think they're disgusting and ruthless and morally bankrupt. But I would never in a million years say that they should be murdered. 
But Matt Gates, a pro-death Republican, excuse me, he considers himself pro-life, is saying we should murder American citizens. So for those of us who thought that this designation of Antifa as a terrorist organization would be used to crack down on civil liberties, we gave them too much credit. They want to use this to kill people they disagree with. Anti-fascists. So Matt Gates, an elected official who's serving in the United States Congress, wants to be able to murder anti-fascists in this country. He should step down. He should resign. Because any lawmaker who thinks we should murder U.S. citizens is not fit to serve. This is psychopathic. We are seeing his thirst for blood displayed in the open. And guess what? If you look at his Twitter feed, he doubled down. He was angry that Twitter limited who could view this because it's obviously inciting violence. He doubled down. He was outraged. He couldn't understand why Twitter would hide this violent tweet. This is a psychopath. And it's not just him. You have Tom Cotton saying no quarter for the Antifa terrorists. I mean, these people are so psychopathic that we can no longer just say that the Republican Party is mostly proto-fascist. This is outright fascism. When you start openly calling for violence, yearning for violence of American citizens, you're just a fascist. And that's not hyperbole to say. If you disagree with me calling Matt Gates a fascist, read the tweet again. Can we hunt them down like we do those in the Middle East? This is deranged, psychopathic behavior from a member of Congress. He wants to murder U.S. citizens. And what's crazy about this? Haven't really heard much about this from the media. Now, I understand because they're covering the protests in a very shitty way, by the way, but you can't just be a sitting lawmaker and say something like this, advocate for the murder of American citizens, and get away with it. Even in authoritarian regimes when this happens, it makes international headlines. So for a U.S. official to openly advocate for the U.S. government to hunt down and kill United States citizens, that is beyond the pale. And he's got to resign and step down, and there should be pressure on him to do just that. Because I don't care who you are, Republican, Democrat, Socialist, it doesn't matter. Nobody should be allowing this to happen. Nobody should allow this psychopath to continue governing if he hates Americans so much that he wants to hunt them down as we do the terrorists in the Middle East. I'm honestly shocked by this. And I've covered politics for years, so I didn't really think there was much that the Republican Party could do to shock me because they are the party of death and destruction. But usually, you know, they resort to dog whistles. Usually they tacitly, you know, uh, admit their true feelings about them not caring if Americans die. But now they're just openly saying it. Let's hunt them down. This party is a fascistic death cult. And if this party does not collapse, then the American system will.
the brilliant Dr. Cornell West sat down for an interview with Brian Williams of MSNBC, and he gave this network the reality check that they desperately, desperately needed. But even more important than that, he is forcing all of us to really face some harsh truths about our system, our system of governance that may be broken beyond repair. We may not be able to change this system, although we're in the process of finding out whether or not our institutions can adapt to the need for widespread systemic change. But before I go on, we'll discuss the implications of what he's saying once we watch the clip. Take a look. We're in a fork in the road. Right now, there's a massive crisis in the legitimacy of any leadership who, who actually speaking out. Of course, the Republican Party is following its neo-fascist gangster who's the leader. The Democratic Party, neoliberal leader, we'll see what Brother Biden has to say, but it's hard to believe that he's going to be able to come through with what is necessary, even though he's so much better than Brother Trump. We must have a spiritual, moral, and democratic awakening among all of the citizens who care recognizing we're going to disagree in the public square, but recognizing that we are losing our democracy. And any time, any society can no longer mobilize the best of its past. It could be Lincoln. It could be Frederick Douglass. It could be Walt Whitman. It could be Toni Morrison. It could be, well, I won't go on and on. But do we have what it takes? It's hard to say. If our system has become so choked by greed and hatred and contempt that it doesn't allow for reform, then the choice is between nonviolent revolution, violent explosions per, that occur over and over again. And I'm opting for nonviolent revolution. By revolution, all I mean is what Martin Luther King meant, which is the fundamental sharing of power, resources, respect, and wealth. Redistribution of wealth, what Brother Bernie was talking about. And I don't believe Bernie has a monopoly on wisdom, even though I supported him twice. But we are in this together. We hang together or we hang separately. But we are also a part of the world. And the world is, is looking. Chinese empire against our own empire. Can it undergo the kind of democratic awakening because it needs fundamental change as well? What about our brothers and sisters in Latin America? What about our brothers and sisters in, 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 in the Middle East? Oh, precious Africa. It is a global affair. And Norm Chomsky reminds us we've got ecological catastrophe waiting for us. And if we have leaders that view it as a hoax, then the whole planet goes under and it's all over and all you got is the cockroaches. That's where we are now. But I do have hope. I'm a blues man. Black people been through slavery. Black people been through neo-slavery, call American terrorism and lynching. And we've been through so much hatred and we've always produced magnificent love warriors like John Coltrane loves Supreme. Martin King's love ethic and Tony Morrison's be loving and James Baldwin's love forces us to take off the mask. We know we cannot live within, but fear we cannot live without. Yes, those love warriors, where are they? Where are the love warriors to teach our young people, no matter what color, put love and justice in your struggle. 
and get that revenge out. But we acknowledge the pain and tell them those at the top that the days of you weeping, this chaos based on your greed is producing precisely the opposite of what Amos, what Esther, what Jesus, our dad Muhammad was all about. Justice, justice, choose ye justice. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. That's Hebrew scripture. Jesus running the money changes out of the temple in the name of the love of the poor people, not losing sight of the money changes, but knowing it's their greed that's choking the best of what was going on in Jerusalem. That's what we need. And if we don't meet that challenge, Brother Brian, the world of trouble, man. I could listen to Cornell West speak forever and never get bored with it. Everything he says is so brilliant, and he manages to take all of the emotions and, quite frankly, the anger that I'm feeling and articulate it in a way that just makes so much sense. And what he's saying here, it needs to be heard by everyone in the country. Right now, there's a massive crisis in the legitimacy of leadership. And that is a huge thing that MSNBC has never discussed because we all listen to the pundits on there. They think that changing America for the better is as easy as voting out Republicans, defeating Donald Trump. But it's not that simple. It's not that simple. The American people are so demoralized and distraught currently because we understand that Donald Trump isn't the only issue in America. We had a lot of underlying issues, material conditions that weren't being addressed, racial issues that weren't being addressed. He manifested because of our problems. Because I've said this once, I'll say it again. Desperation leads to radicalization. It doesn't always have to be bad. It can be radicalization for the good, being, you know, more hardlined in your stance of humanism and, you know, supporting human rights. But oftentimes, desperate people want answers. And if an authoritarian, you know, uh, demagogue comes along and is claiming to give them answers, if they're desperate, they may just believe him. So he's not the cause of all of our problems, but let's be real, he's certainly not making things better. He's exacerbating the issues that we're already experiencing. Now, uh, Dr. Cornell West also says, we must have a spiritual, moral, and democratic awakening among all of the citizens who care, recognizing we're going to disagree in the public square, but recognizing we're losing our democracy. And that's, I think, a key issue here. We can disagree on issues. We can have policy debates about issues like Medicare for All and whatnot. But there is... A lot of people who have misdiagnosed the issue, and MSNBC and mass media is part of the problem. They have misdiagnosed the issue because they make it seem as if this is a partisan issue, but it goes deeper than that. The issues that we're experiencing in America isn't just Democrat versus Republican, and it's as simple as voting. It goes beyond that. And that's what Cornell West is trying to highlight here. He also says, Our system becomes so choked by greed and hatred and contempt that it doesn't allow for reform. Then the choices between nonviolent revolution or violent explosions that occur over again, uh, that's the choice, basically. So, you know, he also talks about how we're dealing with not just crises at home, but we are one country among many. We're dealing with climate change. That is an existential threat to humanity. So the significance of this moment 
can't be overstated. And I think that Cornell West does a phenomenal job at speaking to that. Now, I have one more clip from the same interview that I want to share with you, where Cornell West says things that have got to make an individual like Brian Williams, an MSNBC pundit, feel uncomfortable because he talks about capitalism in a very direct way. And, you know, it goes against what MSNBC is supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be propping up the system. They're stenographers to power. And MSNBC gets hit with some really harsh truths from Dr. Cornell West. The challenge is the gangsterism at the top has been sucking so much of the wealth owing to the Greek, so much of the power owing to its connection to the Greek. No democracy can survive when its public life, its public goods are so privatized and militarized and individualized. John Dewey taught us that, one of our great philosophers. We've got to look at the best of our past in this moment and see whether we can mobilize it for these, these new circumstances. If we can, we'll make it out like Lincoln, like FDR, like LBJ. But if we don't make it out, then we just become another empire that had high democratic possibilities that understood itself as the great city on the hill, the grand exemplar of liberty, but never came to terms with your slavery, never came to terms with your Jim Crow, never came to terms with your working class that was unable to gain access to jobs with a living wage, never came to terms with the humanity of the vast majority of humankind, women, never came to terms with the rich humanity of our precious trans and gay and lesbian brothers and sisters. Never came to terms with the new immigrants. Now, I do believe ooh, we've got a whole lot of magnificent human beings in this country. The problem is, is that it's hard for that to spill over, given the rigidity of our structures. And thank God that those in the street, especially during the day, come from all colors, all gender, all sexual orientations. Mm -hmm. So the public lynching of a precious black brother our dear brother George sparks something deep in the souls of every color, every gender in this nation to get to speak. That's why I thank God the industry. But we do have to acknowledge the degree to which we got to keep track of the best of who we are and render accountable everybody at the highest level as well as those on the ground. So listen, what he seems to be alluding to here is the fact that it might be too late for our system. He says no democracy can survive when its public goods are so privatized and militarized and individualized. So he's speaking to the need, the desperate need, to expand the concept of democracy. It's not enough in a democracy that we show up to vote for leaders that represent us. We need to expand democracy. Have democracy in our policing. Have democracy in the workplace. Basically be radical in our quest to democratize every aspect of society because the status quo isn't working simply voting for people to represent your interests isn't working because those representatives can easily be co-opted by special interests so he's speaking to the need to fundamentally change our system opt for more democratization but we're actually going backwards we're losing our democracy when we should be going in the opposite direction and he says, you know, um, whether we're going to make it out of this moment as Lincoln, FDR, and LBJ did, 
uh, or whether or not we'll become another failed empire with high democratic possibilities has yet to be seen. So what he's getting us to think about is whether or not it may be too late for America. We have to grapple with the reality that America may be broken beyond repair. Our system may not be reformable. Because think about this. We've seen protests for days now. Is anyone confident that we will have a real policy solution? In a functioning democracy, when you see civil unrest on this scale, governments take action. It's only in failed states where they are unable to act that we don't see action. So we are really at a crossroads. And whether or not America's broken beyond repair has yet to be determined, but Cornell West kind of alluded to whether or not he thinks the American experiment has failed in an interview with Anderson Cooper that he did a couple of days ago. Take a look. But I think we are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. And what I mean by that is that the history of black people for over 200 and some years in, in, in America has been looking at America's failure, its capitalist economy could not generate and deliver in such a way that people could live lives of decency. The nation state, its criminal justice system, its legal system could not generate protection of rights and liberties. And now our culture, of course, is so market-driven, everybody for sale, everything for sale. It can't deliver the kind of, the kind of really real nourishment for soul, for meaning, for purpose. And so when you get this perfect storm of all of these multiple failures at these different levels of the American empire, and Martin King already told us about that. When I saw those pictures there in Atlanta, um, you could see Martin right there in Atlanta saying, I told you about militarism. I told you about poverty. I told you about materialism. I told you about racism and all of its forms whatever forms it takes. I told you about xenophobia. And what we've seen in America is now these chickens coming home to roost. You're reaping what you sow. And in this instant, you have Brother George, where it is so clear, it is a lynching at the highest level. Nobody can deny it. And I thank God that we have people in the streets. Can you imagine this kind of lynching taking place? And people are indifferent. People don't care. People mm. are callous. You have just a few people out there with signs. I recall the moments in which during the Reagan years, there was a few of us out there. In the 60s, you had masses out there. Now you've got a younger mm. generation of all of these different colors and genders and sexual orientations saying, we won't take it any longer. But you know what's sad about it though, brother? At the deepest level? It looks as if the system cannot reform itself. We've tried black faces in high places. Too often our black politicians, professional class, middle class, become too accommodated to the capitalist economy, too accommodated to the militarized nation state, too accommodated to the market-driven culture tied with celebrity status, power, fame, all of that superficial stuff that means so much to so many fellow citizens. And what happens? What happens is we got a neo-fascist gangster in the White House who really doesn't care for the most part. You got a neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party that is now in the driver's seat with the, with the collapse of Brother Bernie, and they don't really know what to do because all they want is show more black faces, show more black faces. But oftentimes these black faces are losing legitimacy too because the Black Lives Matter mm. movement 
emerged under a black president, black attorney general, and black homeland security, and they couldn't deliver, you see? So that when you talk about the masses of black people, the precious poor and working class black people, poor and working class brown, red, yellow, whatever color, they're the ones who are left out and they feel so thoroughly powerless, helpless, hopeless, then you get rebellion. What he says here is crucial. And it's so important, every single person in America needs to be listening to what Dr. Cornell West is saying right now. We have to come to grips with the reality of the situation. America is a failed social experiment. Our system may not have the capacity to be able to change at the rate needed to sustain itself. And when that happens, society breaks down. We devolve into either a failed state or an authoritarian police state. So we've got to acknowledge the possibility that we might not be able to save the system as it is right now. In fact, a lot of people already believe that it's broken beyond repair, but I think that normal Americans are starting to wake up to that reality, that our system that we loved and cherished so much, maybe it's not worth saving. This is why Bernie Sanders ran and opted for a political revolution, because that was the last chance to get political reform, and that failed. We might just not be able to save the system, it may collapse. And a lot of people may think that's a good thing because maybe something better can emerge out of the ashes, you know, a new political awakening in America. But you've got to understand that the power grip that the powers that be have on the minds of Americans is so strong that something far worse could emerge out of what we're dealing with currently. And the worst part about that is Americans might welcome it because it's different. They don't know what kind of change they want or need. They just know that change needs to happen. So when they see the American system implode and something else emerges, like a police state, they might welcome it because it's new. So what we have to do as Americans currently, the takeaway from all of this, I think, is that we have to acknowledge the failure of our system and determine whether or not we can save it. And using that information, grappling with that harsh reality, we have to figure out what we do next, how we get justice for people, how we protect humanity. And I don't think there's a clear-cut answer for that. I don't know what the answer is, if there is. I don't know. But we're witnessing the collapse of democracy in America, and it's happening really fast. Usually... You know, the shift from democracy to authoritarian regimes, if you look at other countries where democracy has collapsed, it either happens really quick with a military coup or something like that, or it happens gradually throughout the course of the years. And we've kind of seen a little bit of both here in America. I'm not saying we're a full-out authoritarian regime just yet, but we've seen we've been seeing, you know, the reduction of civil liberties and attack on our freedoms. And now within the span of a couple of months and really weeks now, we're seeing a really rapid fall in democracy where the president of the United States is literally threatening to use the United States military against its own people. If we saw this happening in another country, we would be appalled. The United States government would speak out against these human rights abuses. But it's happening here, and we've got to really think hard and deep about 
how we affect change for the better, and what to do if our system actually has failed, if it is incapable of adapting to the needs of this moment. Our system might be a failed social experiment. In fact, I think it is. I think he's right when he says that. So the question is, how do we build a new system that's better, that actually does give people the change that they need when they need it, deliver justice to Americans, have institutions that are rigid enough to, you know, fend off attacks from fascist agitators, but yet be durable enough to, you know, uh, maintain changes that are made for the better. I don't know. This is the age-old question of democracy and politics, right? But I do know that we have to really be real with what we're working with and fight like hell right now more than ever to make sure we have justice in this country because things are getting bad quickly and it's going to continue to be that way. Because the system, it just, it failed. So I'll leave that there because I'm just rambling at this point. But it's uh, it's hard to grapple with this in real time. It is. We're watching democracy die. And that's hard to digest as someone who has only known democracy in America. Not a perfect democracy, but, you know, a system that at least allows us to voice our grievances. But if Donald Trump actually does what he threatened to do and crush protests violently and we lose the ability to speak out against the U.S. government and, you know, its tyrannical practices, then really all hope is lost. We can't even voice our concerns and what we need to do for change. So things could get ugly if we don't fight right now while we still have the ability to affect change. Elliot Engel is a Democratic lawmaker who is supposed to be representing New York's 16th congressional district. Now, the reason why I say he's supposed to be representing it is because he's not actually representing them. He has not set foot in his district for months, even throughout the duration of a pandemic that's still going on. Not once has he gone to his district to speak with his constituents about their concerns, what they need. Not once. So this individual is not representing his constituents, but he finally did show his cowardly face for the first time in months in his district, and he managed to get caught on hot mic admitting that he wouldn't care if he wasn't facing a primary challenger, and that in actuality, he's only pretending to care. Then, be, then I gotta then go down the list, and it's just too many folks here. If I, if I didn't have a primary, I wouldn't care. Say that again? If I didn't have a primary, I that is astonishing. He just said he would not care if he wasn't facing a primary challenger. So why are you in Congress if you don't care about these issues, these very serious issues that are plaguing your constituents? Why are you there? Well, he revealed why he's there inadvertently. It's because he wants a job. That's it. And here's the issue. This is why this is so problematic. It's not just because Elliot Engel said this. This is not surprising. It's because this is a microcosm of a broader issue. Members of Congress don't actually care. They're completely ambivalent and they just are not concerned with the needs of their, of their constituents. So it takes a literal primary challenger to get them to do the bare minimum, at least put up a facade that they care. I mean, this is absolutely 
outrageous. Now, we didn't get the full context in that video, but we're going to go to the New York Times because Shane Goldmacher provides us with some additional details. He writes, Representative Elliot L. Engel, a New York Democrat who was facing a serious primary challenge this month and questions about his lack of presence in his district, arrived on Tuesday at a Bronx News conference about local vandalism with a determination to speak. But shortly before the news conference began, Ruben Diaz Jr., the Bronx Borough President and organizer of the event, ran through the list of planned speakers to the assembled politicians. The microphone was already broadcasting. Quote, I cannot have all the electeds talk because we will never get out of here, Mr. Diaz said. Mr. Engel pressed his case for a turn. If I didn't have a primary, I wouldn't care, he said. Repeating, if I didn't have a primary, I wouldn't care. First elected to Congress in 1988, Mr. Engel, who is the chairman of the powerful House Foreign Affairs Committee, will face voters again in New York's primary elections on June 23rd. His opposition began to consolidate this week as one of his leading rivals, Andem Greg Briorgis, dropped out and endorsed Jamal Bowman, a Bronx school principal. So he clearly showed up for the quick photo op, just wanted to speak, get the picture taken, and get out of there. Putting in the bare minimum, not even the bare minimum, because it's not like this is work. This is not work. This doesn't qualify as work. You're showing up to say words and then leave. I mean, this is outrageous. And the people in that district shouldn't be the only ones outraged. The people across America who saw him say that shouldn't be the only ones outraged. Democratic lawmakers have got to start holding their colleagues accountable. Assuming that there's any Democrats that actually care about the American people, you've got to hold your colleagues accountable when you see this. Nancy Pelosi should strip him of his committee assignments. Members of the Democratic Party who are in Congress need to call on him to resign immediately because he just admitted that he wouldn't care if he wasn't at risk of losing his job. So how can you claim to care about the American people if you allow people like this in your ranks? The answer is you can't. The American people are hurting currently. And you can't allow people like this to continue representing your party. And again, this is an issue that is bigger than Elliot Engel and New York's 16th Congressional District because Democrats across the country... They just don't care. You have a Republican Party who is hell-bent on harming the American people and Democrats who just sit idly by as it happens and do nothing and don't really care because all they care about is maintaining that seat, keeping it warm. And this guy has been in Congress since 1988, basically the entirety of my life. What has he done besides hurt his constituents or not be there for them when they need him the most? Now, Jamal Bowman, his challenger, spoke out about this, and he says, This is so incredibly painful to watch Representative Elliot Engel. It hurts. We need to be taking care of our communities right now, whether it's election season or not. It's clear that we need new leadership in New York 16. If you think this kind of behavior from an elected representative is unacceptable, join our campaign for progressive change. We need your support in contacting voters and making sure everyone understands what's at stake. So I will put a link in the description box so you can support Jamal Bowman's campaign. And for those of you listening on iTunes, you can go to bowmanforcongress.com to support his campaign. Look, you already see the wind starting to change in this district. His primary challengers are consolidating behind Jamal Bowman, which is a really important step, so they're not fracturing the progressive vote. So if you don't get him out and you live in that district, then when will you be able to defeat him? This guy doesn't care about you. So if you are in New York's 16th congressional district, understand that you deserve a leader. 
I'm not even saying you deserve better leadership because you haven't had a leader. There has been an absence of leadership in that district. You deserve better. Vote out Representative Elliot Angle because he's not representing you and vote for Jamal Bowman. This is an easy decision. Vote him out. And if he's not voted out, then he needs to resign because the people deserve better in that district and other Democrats need to hold their colleague accountable because this is not acceptable. So ask yourself this, how does the United States government treat individuals who they view as terrorists? Well, I think if you're watching this, you are informed enough to know the answer to that question. We indefinitely detain them. We murder them. So when the president of the United States takes to Twitter and he designates Antifa as a terrorist organization, what are the implications of that? Well, clearly, if this is a terrorist organization, that gives the United States government a justification to treat them as terrorists. Deny them habeas corpus, deny them constitutional rights, and kill them extrajudicially, if need be. So, a lot of people, I think, kind of scoffed at that designation on Twitter, but I do believe it's dangerous because it is inciting violence against anyone the United States government views as Antifa. Now, I've explained this before, but to say that Antifa is an organization doesn't really make sense. It's like saying environmentalists is an organization. Sure, there are environmental groups, but to paint Antifa with a broad brush when that label refers to people who are anti-fascist doesn't necessarily make sense. But he did this because he wants to have some sort of justification, legally speaking, to treat them as terrorists. Terrorists don't get rights. Therefore, we treat you like the terrorists that you are under the view of the United States. And as soon as Donald Trump said this, well, of course, the far-right extremists currently in our government, sitting members of Congress, started to incite violence against Antifa. Florida Congressman Matt Gates literally asked on Twitter why we can't hunt them like we do the terrorists in the Middle East. Let me rephrase that if you don't know why that's so outrageous. He asked why we can't hunt United States citizens like we do terrorists in the Middle East. Deny them due process. Kill them extrajudicially. That's what he asked. Now, Donald Trump, by designating Antifa as a terrorist organization and then priming people to believe that Antifa is actually fueling these uprisings, well, when he threatens to use the U.S. military against these protesters, what is he trying to do? He is trying to get you to think that the U.S. military is fighting terrorists. That's what it does. It's not changing the way that it functions. The U.S. military has always been fighting terrorists right? We've been doing this war on terror since a lot of people who are now old enough to vote have been born, right? So it's not really a change when in actuality this is a change. To use the U.S. military against U.S. citizens is completely unacceptable and unconstitutional. So that's why this designation of Antifa as a terrorist organization is unacceptable. And it also doesn't make sense. But there are individuals within government who are far right, who are using Trump's designation of Antifa as a terrorist organization to incite violence against U.S. citizens. And before we get to Tom Cotton's op-ed in the New York Times, well, fewer people knew that he literally advocated for the murder of Antifa members online. He says there should be no quarter for insurrectionists, anarchists, rioters, and looters, which means 
they should be extrajudicially murdered by the state. Because if you're saying no quarter, well, this is a military term. That means we just kill them. We don't capture them, we kill them. That's what Tom Cotton, a United States senator, is saying about rioters, looters, insurrectionists, anarchists, people who might fall under the category of Antifa. So we now have multiple lawmakers advocating for the extrajudicial murder of U.S. citizens after the United States president threatened to use the military to violently crush protests around the country. You have to understand the gravity of this situation and how serious that is. Whatever your political predisposition may be, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, right? Because if you're not allowed to vocalize your policy preferences in a way where you protest, if the government is going to use the military, if we establish that as a precedent, well, then you're not going to get anything you want ever again. So this is very serious. And you have people like Tom Cotton who are now cheering on Donald Trump as he threatens to use the military. He published an op-ed or the New York Times published his op-ed and it's titled, Send in the Troops. The Nation Must Restore Order. The Military Stands Ready. And in this op-ed, he explicitly calls for an overwhelming show of force to crush the rebellion. So let's recap. After this United States Senator said there should be no quarter for these people, he then said, let's call in the U.S. military. This is a declaration of war against the American people. They're saying we're going to treat American citizens who we deem unworthy enough like we do terrorists. No due process, no habeas corpus in some instances, if you go to New York State, for example. We're going to extrajudicially kill them. Why? Because we say that they're terrorists. So listen to us and take us at our word. This is dangerous. And the Republican Party has already been an extremist party. They've already been a proto-fascist party for quite some time. But we're watching them transition from a proto-fascist party to a violently fascist party. Because when you start threatening violence against your own population and following through on that, when you have police uh, departments around the country using chemical weapons against United States citizens... We are officially entering fascist territory, right? It's not just fear-mongering and alarmist rhetoric. We are in fascist territory. Again, a United States senator is calling for an action that could instigate a civil war, pit the U.S. military against the very people that it's supposed to protect. And this is a brazen violation of the U.S. Constitution because think about this. Once the government does this, once the government steps in and crushes protests with the military, well, people will start to slowly but surely accept this as a normal thing, like we accept spying as a normal thing, like we accepted torture as a normal thing during the Bush years. So once we get to that point, all hope is lost. You want Medicare for all and you think that taking to the streets is the only way to get it? Well, now there's precedent if this happens where the military can crush you. It's deeply dangerous. And my worry is that we will accept this because we kind of are accepting this, right? Like I'm talking about it. Some of you online may have uh, vocalized anger over this. And there's been a lot of pushback about the fact that the New York Times even published this goons article. But the fact that we're not protesting outside of their offices after individuals like Matt Gates and Tom Cotton said we should kill Americans extrajudicially, that shows us that 
we might actually accept this. We might just sit idly by as the military steps in and crushes this protest. This is literally tyranny. This is the definition of the First Amendment being violated. This is fascism. And every single person should be shaken to their core if they care about free speech right now. We're not talking about college students protesting certain speakers. We're talking about an actual threat to the First Amendment. We're talking about an escalation so serious that the U.S. government may use the military against citizens. Unacceptable. And anyone who stands idly by, silently, who just allows this to happen without speaking up, you know, maybe they like Donald Trump and they trust them, so they don't necessarily see this as an issue currently. I promise you that if you don't care now, if he follows through with this, you're going to care one day when a Democrat takes office and tries to crush a protest with the military. Because once we say this is okay as a country, then we tacitly give the government permission to do that. It's why they spy on us constantly. Do you understand? So this is deeply, deeply important that we all pay attention currently. Now, here's the thing. What oftentimes acts as a check on government tyranny, or should theoretically be a check on government tyranny, is the media. But guess what the New York Times did? They published the op-ed from Tom Cotton where he literally advocated for the U.S. government to crush these protesters. The New York Times should be going out of their way to act as a check on the tyranny that we're seeing currently. But what are they doing? They're aiding and abetting the fascists currently who are out of control. But it's not the first time that the New York Times has done this aided and abetted fascists, platformed fascists, because on June 22nd of 1941, they published an excerpt from Mein Kampf. Yes, you heard that correctly, Mein Kampf, in an article titled The Art of Propaganda by Adolf Hitler. Now, the attempt to justify this was that, you know, this was published for educational purposes. Since Germany wanted to wage a quote-unquote psychological war on the United States, the editors likely thought that this insight into Hitler's thinking would be insightful for American readers. Although, the problem with this is, if you just publish something uncritically, without actually challenging it, it could have the opposite effect. Now, this isn't the first time that the New York Times, rather than actually pushing back against government tyranny has platformed it and signal boosted for it. As Nathan J. Robinson of Current Affairs points out, they published an op-ed advocating for the bombing of North Korea, as well as the bombing of Iran, written, of course, by John Bolton. And they even published a piece by Blackwater's Eric Prince advocating for the privatization of war. Now, I'm going to link you to Nathan J. Robinson's article in Current Affairs. I think that he does a really good job going through why you know, uh, this was a horrible idea for the New York Times to publish this op-ed by Tom Cotton. Um, but the backlash to this actually made me feel a little bit optimistic. Not a lot, but just a little bit, because there was some pushback from people who actually worked at the New York Times, saying this puts their black writers at risk. And it forced the editor to come out and actually respond. Now, his response was absolutely terrible. He basically makes the generic argument that, you know, if you want to counter bad ideas, then you just need more good ideas, bro. And I mean, he he basically implies that this was meant to be educational, even though he disagrees with Cotton's rationale. And 
let me just say, the same justification he used for publishing this is the same justification that they used to publish Adolf Hitler in 1941. Well, this is educational. No, if you want to get insight into an opinion that you view as deeply problematic, that is objectively unconstitutional, then you can't just publish it uncritically. You have to challenge it. If you're going to platform it, you have to actually subject it to scrutiny. Otherwise, people aren't going to view this as something crazy. A lot of people are going to read Tom Cotton's op-ed and think, wow, this makes sense, and it's published in the New York Times. So this is a legitimate argument that a reputable news source has published. So do you understand the problem with this? Now, look, the New York Times can publish whatever they want to. They are a private company. But the irony embedded in all of this is that the same amendment, the First Amendment that Tom Cotton is attacking is the same amendment that allows the New York Times to exist. Freedom of speech, free press, these are all interconnected issues. So the fact that they published this, I mean, shame on them. If you're going to publish this, then challenge it, right? Don't just allow a United States senator to suggest that we should violate the Constitution in a brazen manner. You're supposed to be a check on government tyranny. You're not supposed to assist them in their quest to gaslight and brainwash citizens, you're supposed to be the check. You're supposed to be the force that stops that, the fourth estate. So what I would encourage you to do, if you read the New York Times and you are a paid member, unsubscribe. I canceled my subscription. I was only the basic like $4 a month uh, subscriber because I sometimes will use them as a source when I uh, do the show. Uh, I canceled and I let them know it was because of, you know, the Tom Cotton op-ed that they published and they shouldn't aid and abet fascists as they literally help our government become more and more fascistic, right? I'm not going to support any institution or any organization that assists the fascists in their takeover of government and American life. Now, I'm going to leave you with the wise words of Marianne Williamson, who writes, The opinion editor of the New York Times should publicly apologize at the very least. Publishing Tom Cotton's op-ed was not just publishing a different opinion. It gave voice to a call for the military takeover of the United States of America. WTF doesn't even begin to cover it. And that's exactly it. WTF does not even begin to cover it. And if people don't grasp the seriousness of this... The, you know, um, the scope of this moment and what it's going to require from us to overcome it, then we are in a lot more trouble than we think. In 1993, 193 different countries convened in Geneva for the International Chemical Weapons Convention. And at this convention, they created the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, or OPCW, which became the official body tasked with implementing the changes agreed to by all of these countries, which later went into effect in 1997. Now, one of the changes that they agreed to was to ban the use of tear gas during times of war, because this is a chemical weapon and using it would be too cruel. Although some of the countries who thought that it was a good idea to ban tear gas during times of war with other countries still wanted to maintain the right to use tear gas against their own citizens. And unsurprisingly, the United States is one of those countries. In fact, this week, the world watched in horror as Attorney General William Barr, whose duty, let me remind you, is to uphold the constitutional rights of American citizens, ordered chemical weapons to be used against peaceful protesters so Donald Trump could grab a quick photo op. 
Now, every single American should be outraged at that sight because we're Americans. We are guaranteed the right to peacefully protest. It's guaranteed to us in the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. But peaceful protesters were gassed with chemical weapons also the president could get a photo op. So, they're using weapons that aren't even allowed in war, that are too cruel for wars against peaceful protesters for photo ops. I need you to understand how outrageous this is if you don't already see it. Now, it's not just that they're gassing peaceful protesters to get crowds to disperse so the president can take photo ops. So in Charlotte, North Carolina, they literally blocked protesters with tear gas so they couldn't escape and had to breathe in the tear gas that was harmful to them. Take a look at this video. They're not going to let us walk at our own pace. Um, and they're going to shoot pepper balls if we stop. And people will run. It's, it's already happening. As you can see. We've got everybody trapped here. We're trapped, there's tear gas. We're trapped here. We're trapped. They're shooting pepper balls at us. They've thrown out tear gas, flashbangs, smoke. They just chased everybody down this way. There's a line of riot police up there. There's a line of riot police back there. <coughs> We're trapped here. <coughs> they're, they're up top shooting at us. <coughs> so what you just saw where peaceful protesters in the United States of America, no signs of looting or rioting, trapped and gassed with chemical weapons by the state that the U.S. government doesn't even think we should use during times of war. Completely unacceptable. But I've got another instance of abuse that I want to show you. In Philadelphia, protesters were trapped on the side of a highway blocked between two different police units and they were gassed by police with these chemical weapons that are too vicious for war. And this video should shake everyone to their core. Did you hear their screams? Did you see how they literally had nowhere else to go? And they were forced to breathe in the chemical weapon, the tear gas that the police had shot at them. And yes, they were protesting peacefully. This isn't just using tear gas to get the crowds under control. That's not what's happening right now. As June, otherwise known as Shuanhead, puts it, this is torture. This is literal torture. We are subjecting American citizens to this. 
for exercising their First Amendment rights. We are trapping them and using chemical weapons on them. Using chemical weapons so dangerous that the international community collectively agreed we shouldn't even use these weapons in war. But we have come to just accept that this is what's going to be used on protesters in America all the time. And the fact that we're so accustomed to it shows you that we've allowed the U.S. government to be tyrannical. We allow them to do this. We see tear gas and we just think, yeah, that's a... Uh, that's the thing that happens when there are crowds that get a little bit too rowdy. Except, no, that shouldn't happen because this is torture. It's cruel and unusual punishment. And I think you can actually make the case that this is a violation of the Eighth Amendment. Because if you're blocking people in and you're not allowing them to escape and they're literally screaming as you use a chemical weapon on them, I mean, I don't know what else to call that. Now, what do the experts say? For this, we go to Insider, who reports, Experts say that tear gassing should be a weapon of absolute last resort, especially because it is so indiscriminate, affecting everyone in an area where it spreads, including peaceful individuals and even police officers. I wouldn't go so far as to say there's absolutely no role for tear gas, especially in violent settings. Dr. Rohini Har, an emergency physician and crowd control weapons expert with Physicians for Human Rights told Insider. But I would say that the level of widespread use, not just in the United States, but abroad, and how frequently it is misused, should give people pause. In 1993, tear gas was classified as a chemical weapon and in 1997 it was banned from use in international warfare yet u.s police continued to use it legally against civilians dr dean winslow an infectious disease physician at stanford healthcare who's been exposed to tear gas as part of his military training told insider it definitely is going to make people cough and sneeze which puts crowds protesting in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic at even greater risk of infection i would certainly discourage law enforcement from using those sorts of riot control techniques, he said. Har said that children, elderly people, and others with chronic respiratory conditions can have an especially hard time breathing in tear gas. In addition, many black Americans disproportionately have pre-existing conditions like asthma that could make tear gas lethal. The United States is quick to criticize other nations for the use of tear gas on their protesters. Licia Brooks, Chief Workplace Transformation Officer for the Southern Poverty Law Center, told Insider, Yet, we use it quite frequently. It's a dangerous chemical agent, regardless of what some people say, that police officers or agencies would tell you that it's safe. Most of the time, it's really used to suppress protest, and that's really one of the fundamental problems with it. Jamil Dakwar, director of the Human Rights Program with the American Civil Liberties Union, told the world in 2019, The most dangerous part of tear gas is often the package that it seeps out of. Tear gas canisters in our research are the ones that cause most of the permanent disabilities, Har said, especially when they hit the head or the neck, the eyes, the delicate bones of the face. Her case study of kinetic impact projectiles, published in the BMJ in 2019, 2017 found that kips, including tear gas canisters, rubber bullets, and beanbag rounds have caused serious injury, disability, and death. Of the 1,981 people who sustained injuries in the 26 studies used for the analysis, Har and her co-authors found 53 had died from their injuries, 71 sustained severe injuries, and 300 suffered permanent disabilities. It's not a humane way nor the proper way to disperse a crowd, Brooks said. I've never really seen tear gas work to de-escalate tensions or to make anything better, Har added. So that's what the experts say. First of all, it doesn't accomplish 
what people think it accomplishes. It doesn't actually do what police say it does. It doesn't disperse the crowds. They just run and they gather in a different area. And on top of that, if it's going to be used, it should be the absolute last resort. And we're talking the last resort to where there's a crowd of people brawling, literally fighting so much that they're killing each other. And tear gas is the only thing that will break them apart and possibly save their life before they take each other's life. That's the only instance, right? But that's not what we're seeing. What we're seeing is police forces across the country use this frequently. It's a common occurrence in the United States of America, and we've all become accustomed to it when this is a serious form of tyranny. This is a chemical weapon that is being used against civilians that the U.S. government won't even use against enemies at war. Do you understand why that doesn't make sense? Why we shouldn't allow this to happen? And the fact that I tell you this, and you probably feel outraged in a sense of anger, but can't expect accountability, can't expect any of the police officers who have deployed tear gas to be held accountable or fired. You can't expect, you know, uh, attorney general to be impeached or Donald Trump to be impeached because they use tear gas shows you how tyrannical our government has become. They are torturing people. Now we saw the video, they're violating the eighth amendment and we are not expecting them to face any consequences for their tyrannical actions violating the free speech rights, the First Amendment rights of peaceful protesters with chemical weapons, and nothing will probably come of it. Do you understand how serious this situation is? We have to acknowledge collectively as a society that this is cruel, it's oppressive, it's quite literally tyrannical. If you don't believe me, look up the definition of tyranny. That's what this is. But the fact that this continues to happen, this points to a trend of more and more of our constitutional rights slipping away from us. Conservatives are fear-mongering about us losing the Second Amendment. We're watching the First Amendment be decimated before our very eyes. And they're not saying a goddamn thing. We're violating the Eighth Amendment. We already violated it when we chose to indefinitely detain and torture human beings. But now we're doing that to American citizens. We already don't really have the Fourth Amendment. Habeas corpus is being suspended. I don't think people truly grasp that when I say we're losing democracy and we're slipping into authoritarianism, this is not me being hyperbolic and alarmist. We're watching it happen right now. It is not acceptable for state actors, police forces, to use chemical weapons against Americans, especially when they are peacefully protesting and exercising their First Amendment free speech rights. And they're calling for civil rights as they're aghast and we all just accept this. No. So why is it a war crime to use tear gas against other countries when we're at war with them, but it's not considered a war crime to use it against your own people. I think the answer is, it is a war crime. If we saw a dictator gassing their citizens, we would speak out. I mean, think about how often Donald Trump and everyone else spoke out in favor of the Hong Kong protests and denounced the brutality of Hong Kong police officers. So why is it okay here? Why are we allowing this to happen? What little ability we have to protest and speak out, we have to exercise it to denounce these types of unnecessarily cruel uses of chemical weapons. 
I want to talk about a particular candidate running for Congress in Georgia's 14th Congressional District because I think she really demonstrates just how radical the Republican Party has become. They are a violent death cult in spite of the fact that they claim to be pro-life. This is a party that is becoming increasingly unhinged and everyone should be worried about the rhetoric that they are using because they are inciting violence against American citizens. So an individual named Marjorie Green had a message for Antifa if they chose to show up in Georgia and uh, loot. She'll fucking murder you. President Trump declared Antifa domestic terrorist organization. I have a message for Antifa terrorists. Stay the hell out of Northwest Georgia. You won't burn our churches, loot our businesses, or destroy our homes. I'm Marjorie Green, and I approve this. All right, so if there's a protest and somebody in the crowd decides to get a little bit rowdy and they choose to break a window and try to break into a building, what this lady just said is she's going to shoot them and kill them. In other words, property is more important than human life. When people commit crime, you can argue that we should put them in jail. Fine. But you're saying, I'm going to shoot them. I'm going to take their life. I'm going to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner. I'm going to unilaterally decide that the property that they are destroying is more intrinsically valuable than that life. This is the pro-life party, ladies and gentlemen. And this is why Donald Trump's designation of Antifa as a terrorist organization is deeply troubling. Because Antifa is not an organization. You can't see who leadership is in Antifa because it's just the name to describe someone's ideology. It means anti-fascists. It'd be as if you claim that environmentalists are a terrorist organization. Well, which group in particular? There are lots of different... Uh, environmentalist groups. It doesn't make sense. But Trump knew what he was doing. He wanted to incite violence. And this type of rhetoric is exactly what we've come to expect because this individual, you know, it's not like she is doing anything different than what Republicans in Congress are already doing. We saw Matt Gates say, why can't we hunt down Antifa like we do the terrorists in the Middle East? We see Tom Cotton agreeing with Donald Trump that we should use the military to violently crush the rebellion happening. So these people are inherently violent. And since she was inciting violence, Facebook decided to take down that ad. And predictably, she decided to uh, cry the victim after she incited violence. And she took to Twitter to demand to speak to Facebook's manager, like the Karen that she is. This is Marjorie Taylor Greene. I am the leading Republican candidate for Congress in Georgia's 14th district. And today, Facebook removed one of my ads. And the reason why they removed the ad is because they said it violates their standards. My ad that I had put out on uh, Twitter and Facebook on Tuesday was an ad telling Antifa to stay the hell out of Northwest Georgia. And the reason why I made that ad is because Antifa has been the extremist agitators that have hijacked many of the George Floyd protests and incited violence on Americans night after night that we have had to endure and watch happen over a week now. You see, I held an AR-15. I'm a legal gun owner. I have a Georgia weapons license 
that gives me the legal ability to carry a gun and to own guns in my state and in my home. And I also have my Second Amendment right, which I can use to defend myself if I need to. But Facebook doesn't believe in that. and They believe in censoring my free speech and my gun rights by removing my ad. Now, the point of my ad was because we aren't going to endure being attacked as everyday Americans, having our businesses looted, being attacked by, by extremists and terrorists called Antifa, which, which President Trump has, is going to label them an, a terrorist organization, which is exactly what they are. And we have the right to say it and to speak it and to put out information and share that information that Antifa do not come near us. Do not come into our cities and our communities to destroy our homes, destroy our communities, to incite violence in our communities, to loot and burn our businesses and our churches. We have every single right to say that. We have every single right to hold a gun in our hand if we're a legal gun owner, which we are. And, and Facebook is taking away my ability and my freedom to do that. They remove my ad, even though as a congressional candidate, I have spent thousands and thousands of dollars on their platform. As an American, I am guaranteed my freedom of speech and my Second Amendment rights. And they should not censor that on my page. It's wrong. When I'm elected and I go to Congress, I am going to fight against big tech censorship. I will fight right alongside President Trump because I'm sick and tired of conservatives having our views and our freedom of speech violated. You know what? I received over 50 death threats in the past 48 hours since I put that video out in my willingness to stand up against the radical left, the party of lawlessness. Now, why aren't they censoring those people? You tell me. You know what? These people, the left, the Democrats, you know what? They are the party of lawlessness. They want to defund the police so the police can't be, can't be able to protect people. You know what else they want to do? They want to continue to encourage protesters, encourage them to go out there night after night. You know what? Many of these protests have been hijacked. They hijacked the purpose of the protest. And they turned it into violence against Americans, which is a war on America. And I'm not going to stand for it. Let me tell you something. I'm a real American woman. And I will not tolerate this violence on everyday Americans. I'm running for Congress because I'm one of those people that will stand up against the radical left and do what I say I'm going to do. So once I'm elected to go to Congress, you better bet I'm going to defend Americans' freedom of speech from big tech censorship. And I'm also going to defend our gun rights because our Second Amendment is one of our most important freedoms and I'm a big believer in our Second Amendment rights. So share this video. Let people know we're going to stop big tech uh, censorship. We're going to stand up against radical Antifa and not allow them to terrorize us or attack us, attack our homes, our businesses, and our communities. And we're also going to stop the radical left, the party of socialism, and we will... I shouldn't have to explain this to you because you're running for Congress, but if Facebook chooses to delete your post, that is not a violation of your free speech. You can argue that that is censorship from Facebook, but your free speech rights are not being violated. A violation of free speech would be when the U.S. government impinges on our ability to freely express our views. So, for example, when the Attorney General ordered peaceful protesters 
to be gassed with tear gas to clear the way so Donald Trump can take a photo op, that is a violation of freedom of speech. But she didn't say jack shit about that because she's the victim. She says uh, Facebook censored her free speech. She says, as an American, I am guaranteed my free speech and my Second Amendment rights, and they should not censor that on my page. And um, she says when she goes to Congress, she's going to defend Americans' freedom of speech from big tech censorship. Your freedom of speech is not being violated if a private company is censoring you. Your freedom of speech, your First Amendment right, is being violated if the U.S. government cracks down on protesters. Especially if they are assembling peacefully. What'd she say about that? Because I'm still waiting. Is she against what Donald Trump did? She hasn't spoken out, but if you go to her website, she claims that she stands with Donald Trump 100% of the time. Really? 100% of the time? See, I am one of the radical socialists that she fearmongers about, and even I don't stand with any politician 100% of the time. I don't care who it is. Bernie Sanders, AOC? No, because I think for myself. So what she's telling you is that she is a mindless drone, a governmental bootlicker, who doesn't actually have any original ideas. She's just going to get in office and do whatever Donald Trump wants. She doesn't have an original thought in that tiny little brain of hers, right? And we know that she has a tiny brain because she's dumb enough to think that Facebook deleting her ad is a violation of her freedom of speech. No, fuckface. The government crushing protests is a freedom of speech violation. How do you not know this if you're running for Congress? Are you stupid? Are you stupid? Well, I can't really come to any other conclusion. Because look at her website. It says she defends the unborn. Okay, well, let me ask you this, Karen. What if that unborn baby grows up to be a member of Antifa? Then you'd fucking shoot it if it decided to loot, right? What if that unborn baby needs healthcare one day? What if the unborn baby resides in Pakistan? Do you think that we should continue to drop bombs on the mothers of said unborn children? I mean... Where do you actually stand when it comes to the pro-life issue? You claim that you're pro-life, but I mean, you just threatened to murder people for looting and rioting. You can say that I am morally against looting and rioting, but to think that killing them, shooting them as a proportional response, you are a dingbat. You're an idiot. I don't know what else to say. You're fucking stupid. You're fucking stupid. And her key policy platform plank, as if she has much, is... <laughs> to uh, stop the radical socialists. Now, it's funny because as a radical socialist, again, I would love to think that the United States government is on the brink of adopting at least like one socialist policy, but we're going in the opposite direction. We're becoming increasingly fascistic, which is something that she probably likes. But look at what she says. Democratic socialists are fighting tooth and nail for a hostile takeover of our healthcare and so much more. Oh, really? Like what? Radical socialists want Americans on the same government-run healthcare plan with welfare recipients and illegal immigrants. Oh, no! Marjorie Green is fighting against these radical socialists and will take the fight to Congress. So what she's admitting here is that tax-paying welfare recipients don't deserve the same quality healthcare that she gets. So what do you want, like a caste system in the United States where we have the haves and the have-nots? I'd imagine so, because she is literally saying, I'm going to go to Congress to stop the socialists who have no fucking power whatsoever. The United States government is in control by Republicans in the executive branch, in most of the judicial branch. You guys got the Supreme, uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, Democrats have the House. But I mean, 
what's the threat? Where's the threat of socialism? It's not on our doorstep. We're not close to advancing towards Medicare for all. The Democratic Party doesn't even support Medicare for all. So what the fuck are you going to do when you get to Congress? You're not fighting socialists because they're not there. They have no power. They're marginalized. They're voiceless. So what are you doing? Why are you running for Congress? Especially when you don't know anything. A person who thinks that Facebook deleting an ad is a violation of her free speech but has nothing to say about the United States government using chemical weapons against peaceful protesters is not someone who deserves to be in Congress. That person is an imbecile who should be ostracized from society and not just be allowed into Congress. But, you know, the sad thing is that she's a microcosm of a broader issue because, again, the Republican Party has become so radicalized that this is the norm. She's probably one of the uh, less insane Republicans, right? I mean, look at Matt Gates. He's a sitting member of Congress who said we should hunt down Antifa like we do the terrorists. We have the president and a United States senator saying, hey, we should maybe use the military against the people they're supposed to defend to crush this rebellion currently. I mean, what a joke. This party is so far gone that if this party does not collapse, the United States government will. The United States government will because they are literally moving us towards authoritarianism and a police state and they're doing it excitedly. They love it. She supports Donald Trump 100%, she says. So she's going to get in Congress and do whatever the fuck Donald Trump wants. But she's only outraged if Facebook deletes her post because they're the real issue. They're the ones with all of the power. Look, you can have a separate conversation about whether or not Facebook acted inappropriately with her. I think that an incitement of violence is a valid justification to delete a post or delete an ad, you know, as much as I disagree with Facebook. But this is a clown. This is not a serious person. And all of the democratic socialists who I've spoken to on this channel, they have a thousand times more substance than this individual does, who is vapid, who stands for nothing, who literally has six policy planks on her website. And some of them aren't even actually policies. Continue building the wall. Um, she wants permanent austerity. Um, I forgot what the other ones were, but what a clown. But I wish that I could say that this is just a fringe. The days where Sarah Palin is the craziest Republican, those days are long gone. Sarah Palin is now one of the more normal Republicans, and this dingbat is the status quo, unfortunately. That's where we're at in American discourse, where the Republican Party is so far off the right-wing spectrum that they make UKIP look like Democrats. We've got another episode of Attack of the Karens, and in this edition of the show, one individual protester who had a sign that said Black Lives Matter was uh, <laughs> confronted with a Karen who didn't like that his poster had a curse word on it, so she did what any Karen in that situation would do. You call the police, and you tattle. Takes is one. All it takes is one. God Thank bless. you. God Beautiful. bless. All this over a fucking side now. There are yeah, two no, police officers here. Can I? The only reason there's two is because for our safety, we don't know what's going on. She is the one who approached me. I was standing here on the side. Excuse me, but could you please not put that sign out because it's going to crank up the wrong people. And I don't want to be driving and have bullets shot at me because they're upset because you started it. But unfortunately, he's allowed to stand here with a sign that says whatever he wants to say on it. 
and she's just upset because I don't want to get caught with their start rioting because of your Yeah, time. I'm also and upset because black and brown lives are at risk every single day in this country. You know Everybody's life at risk, so let's not... Risk. That's right. Thank well, you. thank you for both thank sides. Right. Right. Both, both sides. And are. we need to appreciate everything they do. Okay? So it's black lives fucking matter. Okay. I mean, come on, little kids are reading that. I'm sorry if you're a snowflake and you can't handle... <laughs> that was golden, and really the best part was when he called her a snowflake, and I wish I could see <laughs> the rest of that exchange, because that was brilliant, and uh, that guy is a patriot. And listen, here's the thing, and conservatives have to come to grips with this. You can't, on one hand, claim that the left is hypersensitive and they're snowflakes and SJWs, but continue to act like snowflakes and SJWs yourself. Now, maybe this woman is not a conservative. I don't know. I'm assuming she is, right? Um, but based on her ignorance, I can only assume that she is politically aligned with someone like Donald Trump. Uh, but you can't keep acting like snowflakes. And even the free speech warriors who denounce SJWs at their loudest voices, you know, from the rooftops of every building in America... Even they act like SJWs. Tommy Loren is the individual who popularized the word snowflake, but she gets offended when people peacefully protest during the national anthem to highlight police brutality. So, I mean, either you're going to denounce snowflakes or you're going to be one, but you can't simultaneously denounce snowflakes while acting like one. It doesn't work that way. Now, you can tell in that video that the cop was reluctant to admit that he had the right to hold up that sign with a curse word, but of course he does. And she was worried that him, that one person being there, would cause a riot. Like, how fragile, how scared are you to think that one person with a sign that said Black Lives Matter would lead to a riot? I mean, it just shows how skewed your perception of reality is. Guess what? It's not Black Lives Matter who are the ones responsible for most of the domestic violence in the United States with regard to terrorist attacks. It's right-wingers. It's far-right individuals. The armed thugs who oftentimes show up as counter-protesters to intimidate peaceful protesters. It's them. It's not the Black Lives Matter protesters. And you can say, well, sure, there was rioting and looting that broke out in Minneapolis and some other uh, states. But still, most of these protests that are now happening around the world are peaceful. So for you to say that, it just shows how fragile you are. And this is really the conservative worldview. They're afraid of everything. They're afraid of, you know, uh, undocumented immigrants. They were afraid of gay people. I'm sure that they still are, but I guess they've moved on to trans people now. They're always scared, and their fear is justification to hold the rest of society back, to keep marginalizing certain groups and deny them their civil rights. And we shouldn't stand for it. We shouldn't allow this, right? You're supposed to be the tough guys and gals. You're the one who um, probably touts your gun. I mean, I don't know much about this lady, so I'm, I'm kind of speculating and generalizing a lot here. But, you know, just based on her reaction, I can't help but think that, you know, someone with this level of reactionary views, uh, how could they not be a Trump supporter? How could they not feel comfort when he fearmongers about, you know, thugs? as he calls them. Someone like this probably takes comfort when she sees that the president tweeted, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, because she thinks, oh great, because I'm not going to be shot. I'm not protesting. I don't care about black lives. So this is great because it doesn't affect me. Okay, well, what if there's a Democrat in control and you feel as if 
he or she is being tyrannical. Don't you want the ability to freely express yourself and denounce that Democrat? Do we really want to set the standard to where protest is not allowed or frowned upon even? I mean, I'm just, I'm sick of the ignorance. Now is the time where you've got to wake up and you've got to educate yourself and you've got to be introspective. Think about what you've been doing wrong. Think about the ways that as human beings, we're not perfect, but we can always improve. We can learn more and most importantly, learn from each other. Because I think that if we continue to isolate ourselves into these bubbles, then we're going to have reactions like this to where we think that someone who's holding up a sign that says Black Lives Fucking Matter is a literal threat. That all of a sudden there's going to be riots at her doorstep. I mean, this this is this is ignorance. This is unnecessary ignorance, right? And I say this knowing that I need to do better at expanding my bubble because I've become so disgusted with conservatives that I can't even look conservative family members in my eye. That's how disgusted I am because of how extreme the Republican Party has become, right? So we all have to do better and we have to reflect and figure out a way that as a society, we're going to be able to coexist. Otherwise, society will collapse. And it's not going to be because of Black Lives Matter. It'll be because the government is going to capitalize on this polarization and crush people who it doesn't uh, agree with or thinks is a threat, like we're seeing with Donald Trump. So I don't care what you feel uh, when it comes to uh, the left or whatnot. You might think we're snowflakes, but you should be respecting the right to protest. She should be uh, appreciating the fact that that one individual is holding a sign because that's the hallmark of American democracy. Protesting, complaining, shitting on the government. So, I mean, I don't know what else to say. I just thought this was a feel-good video and his reaction, uh, response, it was just, it was perfect. Well, that's all that I've got for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far. Once again, please consider donating to a local organization that is assisting protesters with bail money and whatnot. I think we really need to do everything in our power to use our voices and our dollars to uplift the people currently putting their lives and bodies on the line to fight for justice in America that should have been granted to black Americans since this country was founded but we've allowed injustice to go on for so long that i think we all absolutely bear responsibility myself included we're all guilty i am of the belief that white silence is violence and we have to speak out use our white privilege to fight for a better world for our black sisters and brothers who are currently demanding justice once and for all because they're fed up, they're exhausted, and we've got to be right there with them, protecting them, lifting up their voices, because we cannot allow this to keep happening. We cannot allow them to be murdered with impunity by police and just sit idly by and ignore it because it doesn't affect us personally. Not anymore. No more lives lost to police brutality. We have to fight to change the system so this doesn't happen so i will leave that there thank you all so much for listening i really appreciate uh everything i would encourage you to rather than listen to people like me please follow important black voices like benjamin dixon right now tim black nico house uh there are so many black progressives who are doing a better job at speaking to this issue than i am and so for me i think really what my purpose is is to speak to other white people and let them know about the privilege that we have and let them know what we have to do but if you really want to educate yourself you have to embrace black voices and i think it starts by changing 
where we focus our attention to. We can't just listen to white people talk. We have to listen to black voices. I think that's so important. So thank you for considering everything. Thank you for listening. I'm Mike Figueredo. This has been The Humanist Report. I will see you all next week. Take care.